0: Hi, this is Sarah Tebow, and this is Liz Bernstein, and we are the hosts of the SideWoo podcast. This is a space to investigate what makes a creative life possible, from the mundane to the sublime, the physical to the metaphysical. Welcome to the SideWoo. Hello, and welcome to the 14th episode of the SideWoo. This is co-host Sarah Tebow. Liz will not be joining us this episode, but she will be back next week. On today's episode, I will be talking with fellow Scorpio, Robert Pasolino. and he is the Patrick and Amy Butler Curator of Painting at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. He is known as the Curator of the Dispossessed, and that's pretty much the most Scorpio thing I've ever heard. He worked for six years on the exhibition, Supernatural America, the Paranormal in American Art, and it has finally made its way to its third and final stage at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. The work takes a look at material culture and artwork inspired by a connection to the spirit world from the Civil War up until the present. And I want to thank artist and friend of the sidewoo, Rachel Dawson, for telling me about the show. I was going to be going home to Minnesota to visit family, and she's like, oh, make sure you check out this exhibition. So I did, and I, as a result, got to meet Bob in person and tour the show, and it was just really great to have that IRL experience after so many years of doing things over Zoom. Um, Well, anyway, Bob has so graciously agreed to come on the show and talk about the exhibition, as well as, you know, his experiences with the spirit world and his motivations for wanting to create a show that really prioritizes artist's connection to the spirit world. I have a few things that I wanted to talk about. I am as usual available for tarot readings and I just created a new reading called Deep Energy Tarot and it includes a chakra scan so it kind of takes a more holistic approach at figuring out if you have a particular issue that's coming up looking at the full body instead of just reading the tarot cards and i just finished a attachment class with amy major who will be a guest on our upcoming episode and so i have this new skill set and i'm really looking for people to kind of practice it on so I'm giving pretty big discounts. If you are interested, feel free to reach out to nina at ninaarna.co or you can just order through the website. But to get a discount, you just have to reach out to me first and then we can discuss. Okay, well, I think that's all for now. And I look forward to hearing your thoughts on the episode. Feel free to email us at thesidewoo at gmail.com and, you know, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts follow on all the platforms. You know the drill. Okay, on to the episode. It's so good to see you again. Yeah, you too. How are things at the museum?
1: Uh, good. It's The show is just super popular and every time I walk in there to check on it and talk to the guards, they're lots of different kinds of people in the galleries and all. Cool. so people visiting in groups and talking to one another so it's really Oh,
0: that's good. It's really good. Yeah. yeah. You recently had a group of mediums come and give a lecture is that?
1: Uh no, we had Molly McGarry, the historian, she came and gave a talk on the history of well, on the anniversary of the Fox sisters hearing the rapping so that was March 31st. Okay. And then we are having other public programs, but the mediums that are coming to visit on the weekend of the 24th are just coming to visit for fun.
0: <laughs> awesome. But I'll be
1: meeting up with them. There's like eight. Okay. They're coming from, I think, predominantly Lilydale, but from some other places too. So that'll be fun.
0: Oh, cool. I wonder if they'll sit and channel or <laughs> go into the paintings and get some energy readings.
1: That would be delightful. Yeah. yeah I mean, I'll, it'll be interesting to see how that goes.
0: I. Wanted to talk about the exhibition. It was this major labor of love over the course of six years. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how it came to be and why you got interested in the supernatural and art.
1: Sure. Um, right now?
0: Yeah. Whenever <laughs> or later.
1: Okay. I also wasn't sure what your format was, if you're oh. uh, like do editing or whatever. So, yeah. Okay.
0: Yes, we definitely do. We edit the crap out of our episodes. <laughs> okay. So Okay.
1: So I have always been interested in this subject matter. And as I I think we talked about before, I was born on Halloween.
0: <laughs> oh, wait, you did not tell me that.
1: So <laughs> you could take that how you like as just kind of a silly little f- fun fact or legitimately part of my DNA is an interest in uh, curiosity about all things supernatural and mm. The unseen, the mysterious. It's always been something that's captivated my imagination in all forms since I was little. And so I am really drawn to artists who investigate the broadest range of human experience. And so sometimes that means artists who deal with difficult subject matter, whether we're talking about war or we're talking about death, or who are making images that might be hard for the general viewer at a museum to sort of deal with when they come into the galleries. So artists, particularly feminist artists who are dealing with sexuality in a frank way or sometimes an explicit way, everything. So the idea of focusing on artists who are really open about the widest range of spirituality and those aspects of spirituality that perhaps might get them ostracized from the mainstream, but they're absolutely committed to and forthright about being part of their worldview is something that I've always respected and always felt a kinship with. So when I started working at the Minneapolis Institute, and that was in the very beginning of 2016, I came with a really broad range of exhibition ideas that I wanted to do. And I can't remember if we talked about this before, Sarah, but a lot of what I've done in my career has been championing underrepresented artists or artists who are totally under the radar, under known, and doing major shows with lots of voices, writing about them and, and looking at them in a new way. And that went over at a much smaller institution very well. But at a larger institution, there's this pressure to have a bigger populist exhibition that has lots of entry points for people. And so doing major retrospectives of artists with who don't have household names, I think is maybe less of the inclination of larger institutions. I hope to, that changes, but mm-hmm. all of the artists, all of the ideas that I had <laughs> for retrospectives of artists who are under was just not going to fly because it just didn't seem like the, a good fit. But this show about the supernatural and artists who are exploring spirituality from a channeling and media ship point of view was of interest because of that interdisciplinary range that it's something that if you are interested in art and you're interested in this particular topic of course it's going to be exciting for you to come see that finally revealed but at a major institution but if you're interested in literature or comics or podcasts about supernatural tales or people's first hand experiences or ufo's or all the things that have to do with the paranormal you're going to have lots of entry points so i think that was a no brainer I I quickly understood as I was pitching these ideas and thinking about the identity of the institution. And so when I, you know, pitched it, our former director, who's now at the National Gallery, Karen Feldman, was completely sold on it and excited and, and immediately said, you have the green light, you should go forth and do it. So it's something I've been thinking about for a long time. And I just was interested in in exploring it from probably a point of view that my colleagues wouldn't have come from.
0: <laughs> Definitely. I I don't go to museums every time I go back to Minnesota being from there, but yeah. I've never seen an exhibition with the the not only the scope but like just the subject matter that mm-hmm. you brought in into museum, definitely not Minnesota and probably not anywhere. In your research, did you find any other exhibitions that dealt with mediumship in such a like literal way?
1: Not really. I mean, there have been uh, a few exhibitions in the last maybe five to six years that focused on individual people like Georgiana Houghton, who is a medium and an artist in the in 19th century Britain. And obviously there's Hilma Aufklimp. All those those exhibitions were uh, implemented or happening while I was working on this show. Yeah. And so, and then there's some other examples, but they're mostly European mediums or mystics who mm-hmm. had, there were single artist shows of these people. Mm-hmm. In the past, in 1986, the Le- Los Angeles uh, County Museum of Art, LACMA, did an exhibition called The Spiritual in Art. And it was basically mm-hmm. yeah. really focusing on abstract art from about 1890 to maybe as late as. 1985 or something. I can't remember the date or span, but it was quite a while. And it really focused on abstraction as the mode through which artists were expressing spiritual states or spiritual ideas. So yeah. I think you'll-
0: And that's actually, I was like the most surprised to see that there wasn't just geometry everywhere. It's very right. representational. Yeah.
1: But otherwise, and we can talk about that more in a minute, but there really hasn't been an exhibition that's quite like this that has the scope or really integrated mediums who are not considered artists first and foremost or primarily working and operating in the art world. In the 1920s, I did find that at an American commercial gallery in New York, the Anderson Galleries, there was an exhibition of mediums and their art that included people like Helen Butler Wells and Emily Talmadge, and a few other people who are actually represented in the exhibition, Marion Sporebush. And I would love to find the other people who are in that exhibition, but I haven't tracked down their work. So in some cases, these, these folks did get eyes on them outside of the spiritualist circles that they mostly worked in, but they haven't been integrated into American art history in any way. And it's really only recently with the success and popularity of that Hilma al Klint exhibition at the Guggenheim that yeah. suddenly heads turned. And I, I just think that it's it wasn't a surprise to me or a lot of the folks who are interested in this material, because I do it cuts across a wide range of interest, backgrounds, and, and cultural communities. Mm-hmm. I, I think that people that don't normally think of themselves as coming to museums or looking at art, for art's sake, or because they have a deep and abiding interest in art history, come to that material because of the story behind why it was made, how it was made, what kinds of other connections in the world or in the other world these artists are are making. People are fundamentally interested in this idea that these human beings were channels or considered themselves instruments and want to know what was that experience like what do those people have to say about it mm-hmm. and what kind of art results from it
0: yeah absolutely yeah i mean i think that's why ghost hunter shows do so well in popular culture people mm-hmm. just want to know more about what it is like to engage with the spirit world and i know that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons i started this podcast was to talk to people and find out more for people who are in the minneapolis area this exhibition is amazing you should go see it it is huge you should spend like three hours there. (laughs) (laughs) I think I spent like two and a half with my mom. How did you organize the work? How did you leave things out or decide to include them?
1: Yeah. I can't overemphasize enough how little attention has been given to this in the field of art history of the United States, that these kinds of topics or artists who would, who would say they were contacting the spirit world or channeling the spirits Has just been marginalized, not talked about. If it's part of an artist's, a mainstream artist's biography, or it's, you know, resulted in a few works, I think that's often been glossed or wished away or thought of as embarrassing. And so it's really been ignored. And so my task was to try to figure out what a first pass (laughs) at admitting this topic has been important, critical, I think, culturally to the history of creativity in the United States, what does that look like? And how do you do that justice while respecting that audiences have a limited time and aren't going to spend five hours in an exhibition and don't want to look at 1500 works of art? I mean, some of us do, but so narrowing it down was really critical. I've been collecting for years, images of art being done through mediumship or images that just showed, here's a painting and a print of a ghost, or this is a painting about witches or whatever it might be, and just got as much material as I could. And I would say that my real interest in this uh, started with my dissertation on the artist Ivan Albright, who's represented in the show by two paintings. One is a 1931 still life that is seen from above and is very meticulously done, but is also disorienting. And then another painting he did between 1966 and 1977 called If Life Were Life, There Would Be No Death. And it's also known as The Vermonter. And it's a portrait of one of his neighbors in Woodstock, Vermont, that he did over the course of 11 years, actually longer, because there were a couple false starts before he worked on the Masonite panel that we see. And Ivan Albright is an artist who, if... People have been to the Art Institute of Chicago. There's Most of his work is there because when he turned 80, he gave a lot of it to oh, that okay. museum. He had gone to school there and grew up there. So he's the artist who did the picture of Dorian Gray for the MGM film in uh, 1945. Wow. Yeah.
0: That makes a lot of sense, actually. Because you feel like when you're looking at these pieces that they could start moving, even though they're kind of fantastical and they have a lot of like energy bubbles and sparkles on them. Like, yeah. But... You feel like they could come out of the painting at some point. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. He was obsessed with the idea of trying to show motion in two dimensions. Mm. So the work that he did in the 1930s, primarily, of portraits of his neighbors in Warrenville, Illinois, or this painting that took him a decade to make of a door, has largely been discussed in terms of being about death and the macabre and decay. And I never actually saw it that way when i first saw his work when i was in high school and then had a chance to work on a retrospective i in 1997 always saw something more affirming and spiritual in the work and something curious and hard to pin down and so a lot of people had talked about the work in terms of death and decay and the vulnerability of the body because of his experience in world war 1 mm-hmm. so ivan albright enlisted in the american expeditionary forces and for the entire duration of his war service in 1918 and 1919, he was at a base hospital in France and was drawing wounds for Ew. surgeons who are working on, basically, his peers who are coming off the battlefield. So he's documenting wounds in these sketchbooks. And
0: okay, that is gruesome. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, that's what it, I mean, and they are they're oh. they're very detailed. They're clinically observed. Yeah. And and it made sense because during World War One, we you had. Weapons that had never been used right. before, just the most horrific things to to blow apart and destroy the human body. And surgeons were faced on the spot, like trying to figure out right. how do you how do you mend people? Can you save them? What kinds of advances could medicine make in the field in order to help these people who are coming off the battlefield? Mm. So all these like all these war treatises on uh, shared knowledge amongst doctor- doctors actually um, were circulated while the war was going on uh, amongst internationally. And so that was a big deal. That's
0: beautiful, actually. So
1: Albright is thrown into there as a young man, like documenting these wounds, and he's fascinated by it. And I think a lot of people sort of stopped there and said, well, that explains it. But what you see when you look at all these sketchbooks and you page through them is that he was really fascinated by the healing process. There is often the same subject drawn with a wound, and then he'll show how it was treated. And then weeks later, he'll follow up and show how it's healed. Mm -hmm. And so I think that process of the energies and the forces within the body knitting together flesh again and, and helping the body heal back from a catastrophic wound was really critical for Albright. And so in the 20s, in his notebooks, he is writing constantly about issues of body and soul. And you could tell that he's exploring, either because he quotes these things or he's echoing them, Emanuel Swedenborg writing about this kind of stuff. He's writing about spiritualism and theosophy and all these different kinds of philosophies and bodies of thought and, and writers who are really interested in Like, what is our essence? We're just these bodies. We're being used for a while, but what's really the core key to existence? And so that intangible part is what Albright was obsessed with trying to show simultaneously with the physicality of the body. And so early on, I think when I was working on my dissertation, I thought he can't be the only person who was an artist who was interested in trying to do that paradoxical thing of showing something that's intangible invisible visible mm-hmm. form. And like you said earlier, a lot of the the ways that art historians have talked about that is that abstraction is the most appropriate form for that. But Albright went the polar opposite in this kind of maximalist, hyper-realist method to depict what looks in, on those paintings like growth happening before your eyes mm-hmm. this idea of growth and decay simultaneously going on but also these other sort of strange ethereal forces that seem to be animating and giving life to this inanimate this this matter Which, so
0: honestly i didn't know that story about the wounds but like that is basically the process of a wound healing is this mysterious force acting upon physical matter and transforming it over yeah. time i mean that's kind of one of the most magical things that a body can do is heal itself.
1: Right, exactly. So that was the, that was like, probably a big moment is just thinking about, well, this is counter to the ways that I've been taught about how the spiritual and art is appropriately manifest. And so in the show, there are some abstract artists, Henrietta Reese, for instance, or Agnes Pelton, or Alma Thomas, but most of it is art done through tangible representational methods in order to show the viewer exactly what these artists either experienced or saw, either felt in their body or or saw with their own eyes that seemed miraculous or impossible and wanted mm. to convey to somebody. So getting back to this business, the, your question about how the hell did I narrow it down, I think For me, it's always a process of letting the material guide me. So looking at all of the stuff that I kept gathering and then asking questions about it and then convening a lot of advisors who were across the humanities and also some community members, including spiritualists, and testing out the material or what I thought the show was about over and over again, In sometimes in public forums, but mostly in these sort of convenings or one-on-one with people. To try to define over and over again, what are some of the biggest questions that this, this material is provoking, or what are some things that seem to be rising to the top that are key themes? What helped focus immensely was to decide that the majority of the show was going to be works by artists who we knew had had these experiences, and we could tell that because of what they left behind in their archives or interviews that were done in their time, or for the a dozen or so living artists who are included in the exhibition, those artists are people that I talked to about things that they had had witnessed, experienced, or whatever, or, or we knew that their practice was completely bound and tied and connected to their experience of what they would call natural, but some people might call the supernatural. So when it came to that focus, I think it was a lot easier to start chucking things out of the show, even though they were exciting images that... Where somebody make a a fanciful or witty image of a ghost, but it wasn't right. really out of their own experience.
0: Yeah, got it. So by experience, you basically mean make contact with the spirit world. Yeah, in some shape or form.
1: Yeah, that we know they they said in letters or archives or whatever. I there's poltergeist activity in my house, or or in the case of Ivan Albright, he wrote in many cases about like speculating about the physical properties of of ghosts can it cut if it cuts the air you can hear it does mm. it reflect light asking these things in a serious way and the way that a lot of researchers themselves did in the late 19th century when spiritualism mm. and science overlapped
0: and do you feel like doing all this research for the exhibition you have a better sense of what the spirit world is or do you feel like you have a stronger connection now than you did when you first started
1: I think I probably have a stronger connection to it now because I have talked with such a broad range of people who this is just their their daily experience of things, or mm-hmm. I never actually talked to mediums in a spiritualist church or people who were channelers or in one case, a Lakota elder here mm. and got their take on all this stuff. I had some assumptions or concerns about how to respectfully do this. I mean, I felt like, like I would, but I really wanted to talk to them and hear what they had to say. And so I think if anything, it's strengthening my own belief about there being a spirit world and about that veil mm. being permeable. If there is a veil mm. between the spirit world and ours, I, in some ways that I don't really believe there is a veil, I think they're all over the place.
0: Yeah. Uh, Messing with our technology, exactly. <laughs> our electronics. Okay, that's interesting. Did when you first started the exhibition, did you have some doubts around whether what the spirit world was or whether it was even real?
1: Uh, no, not at all. I, I was already kind of all in.
0: Okay, I figured <laughs> but, you would have to be kind of yeah. that long in it, but yeah,
1: yeah, because <laughs> I had had my own experiences in several different sort of cases over the course of my life and. Had already met some practitioners, and but I, I think just getting deeper into this and really doing outreach to the spiritualist community or or people who are spirit spiritual practitioners who did talk to spirits or did you know some form of channeling mm-hmm. just made me feel like yeah the, just my belief in all of this just got strengthened.
0: Did you have anyone from your spirit team like come through as you were talking to people?
1: So when I. The first time I went to Lilydale in twenty seventeen which is a spirituals camp that's been in existence since the eighteen seventies in New York, just an hour west of Buffalo, I sat with a fifth generation medium and had a reading and I got some tips on who I might contact to see there from my friend Shannon Taggart, who was going there for years photographing the spirituals community and also hosting or organizing a a symposium that happens every year. And so I was like, well, do you have any recommendations? (laughs) Like there's Yelp for mediums of who I should go sit with. And so she, she had some names. So I I sat with this medium named Gretchen Clark, and I thought I was being clever by, I don't know what I thought. I sent her my email, I sent her an email asking for an appointment from my non-work account. So she didn't see my full name or, or that I was a, curator, or anything like that, just to see if I could minimize the kinds of random associations she might have.
0: Which is honestly fair. Yeah. Like I've, I've worked with an astrologer who's like, don't send me anything. If you have an email signature, delete it, because then no one's going to argue with him. Right. That like... He Googled you or were, but.
1: Yeah. So I went to meet with her and the whole experience was fascinating because I, I have no idea what to expect. But during that sitting with Gretchen Clark, uh, several ancestor spirits that there's no rhyme, there's no way that she would have known anything about these people came through and presented messages. Yeah my maternal grandfather, my paternal great grandfather, who I never knew. And there were very specific details attached to them that made it clear that that's who they were to me. And that kept happening. There were several other people. And then a couple of people that I had no family ties to, like, I I think Ivan Albright's daughter came through and also possibly him. I mean, you sit there and you think, I mean, the first time she asked me to sit and kind of close my eyes and sort of focus and think about who I might want to come through. And there were a few people that sort of was thinking about, and none of those people came through.
0: Oh, okay. (laughs) They don't like to be summoned. (laughs) Yeah.
1: but She just, the way that Gresham talked about mediumship and the way other mediums that I've interviewed have talked about it is that there's no, she has no control over who's going to come through. She opens the channel and she, allows the spirits to speak and reveal themselves and walk sort of come forward to her. And so it was, there was one who was sort of curious who had an admonition, like a warning for me about the steep, very steep, narrow stairway in my house.
0: Oh, okay.
1: (laughs) Which there was and how a light, was a light was broken? Yeah. In or wasn't coming on, and then I should make sure that I change that bulb and fix it because somebody's going to have an accident. Oh well. Wow. And in fact, I had before, like the 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 we the December before, I went to Lilydale. That same that incident had happened. Okay. Nobody was badly hurt, but heard my young son like. Calling for me in the middle of the night, and so I went upstairs to get him. It was coming down carrying him, and the bottom stair was not like contiguous with the floor; it was like a step up where the door closed, and it closed at the the sort of stair rather than the bottom of the floor. And it was the middle of the night, so I kind of misjudged it and fell. And he was fine; he sort of just ran into our room. Okay, um, (laughs) but almost sprained my ankle. Like I landed on my foot wrong. And the next day I even went to get an x-ray. And so the fact that the spirit had come and said these specific kinds of things was just bizarre, you know? And I mean, that's just like,
0: one of the things just
1: like sometimes about these experiences you have with mediums of like, (laughs) why don't they come and bring more profound messages instead of fix the damn bulb you know you're gonna break your leg but there's a place for that too
0: (laughs) it's a really good point yeah um i i've only had one reading that was like not intended where my dad came through and Mm -hmm. said something that was really helpful it was kind of casual but it was like something that i held on to because Mm -hmm. i went through like kind of some uncertain growing period and knowing that he was like, Oh yeah, you're going to do this. Don't worry about it. Like knowing that he said that I was like, okay, like dad said, it's cool. So yeah. it's going to be fine. But, but yeah, it is interesting. Well, I mean, but if you break your leg or arm, like that becomes not so insignificant, you know, potentially that's true. or worse. you <laughs> Right. <know? laughs>
1: yeah. And, and the idea of these other ancestor spirits who in one case I had never met coming through and bringing forth these messages that were basically, they basically both amounted to we're, we're, we're there with you. We're watching you. We're really proud of you or feel like you're on the right track or you should continue to do what you're doing. It's, I think in some ways those are profound messages because it suggests that there is this continuum and that you're connected truly to those who came before you, which is the whole sort of point of, interacting with the spirit world for that kind of wisdom and the kind of conviction that yes we need to continue on and make our way with the, in this world and try to make it better in whatever way we're we're able to do that's also not to be taken lightly yeah. and so i'm sort of making sort of sort of being a little sort of silly when I say that, but, you know, but that's, and then the other thing was that there's just some other spirits that we couldn't identify, but I have some suspicions about who they were, who were acting in a certain way that Gretchen Clark was sort of describing. And that, that like one was just sort of darting all over the place and in constant motion. And I kind of felt like I knew who that was, but these are all kinds of things that you also kind of, have to sit with and mm-hmm. meditate on and think about your, how your intuition is pointing to that. But that was just my experience with Gretchen Clark. And I had other paranormal supernatural experiences that happened before that in my oh. life that.
0: Well, being born on the uh, 31st, I can imagine you were just like born into yeah. the portal. <laughs> so.
1: Totally. Exactly. Wow.
0: <laughs> well, I, yeah, I was kind of thinking as you were talking that probably as someone making a show about the spirit world, you're going to attract attention from the other side, like to support you because it seems to me that the spirit world is invested in getting their presence known. A lot of times, I don't know if you felt like there was like an extra push because of the nature of the exhibition.
1: Well, I wonder about that because I think that the, the show, I think the show was charmed from the beginning. I mean, I Hmm. presented it, at at Mia at the Medieval Institute, early on when it was not quite, I wasn't even sure it could be a show. It was just an idea that I was excited about, and when I presented it, I didn't realize I was truly presenting it as a show that I was fully ready to do, <laughs> and which is and it was approved at the end of that meeting, which is unheard of. Like that just does doesn't happen yeah. at, at this institution. It's more of a long contemplative sort of collaborative process of providing feedback. And so that happened right, right at the end of that meeting and I was taken aback by that. And so green light. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so then I I worked on it between 2016 and then know the catalog was out or the first venue opened the show in 2021. So it took that long to develop it, but you know, we sent our loan letters out to request the objects that would be in the exhibition at the end of 2019, mm. so they were really hitting institutions and person and private collectors in February and March of 2020. Right, <laughs> and so I think my colleague Heather Everhart, who works in the department with me and worked on every aspect of the show with me, um, sometimes we kind of look at one another now that the show's up at the at Mia and go, oh my God, I can't believe that this, can you believe this really happened? We really did it considering (laughs) all the things that happened in 2020, because any show of this scale, it's like 180 objects that are borrowed from many different kinds of museums and archives and libraries and private collectors. And even two drawings came from a museum in the UK is logistically complicated. And You spend a lot of time building trust and building on your prior relationships with colleagues, but doing the outreach to the spiritualist community was new for me. Mm -hmm. And you hope that the things you feel tell the story best are going to be approved to actually physically be removed from the collections that they're housed in and then go either to your museum or the whole tour. And so that's... Just that's, that's like the kind of work that all curators have to do that's behind the shows that everybody sees at museums. But to have those decisions being sort of having us wait for those decisions to be made when the pandemic started and then through the months, the first months of the pandemic um, was nerve wracking. You know, we didn't know people weren't at museums, right. committees that meet to approve loans or conservators who look at objects to make sure that they can travel photographers who photograph the objects for artwork, they just weren't around. And so for much of 2020, just with the pandemic, we were continuing with the idea that it was going to happen, but we weren't really sure to what extent it was going to happen or if it would be able to happen on the timeline we expected. And then, you know, we're in Minneapolis and Uh, George Floyd was murdered and there was a whole uprising and racial reckoning that was happening that was just one of many other instances that has unfortunately happened in this community. And people had just had enough, understandably. And I and everybody most closely connected with the show all live in the neighborhood that was the center of the uprising. So we were also trying to do what we could to pitch in in our community Mm -hmm. and be present for that while also dealing with kids who are (laughs) doing online learning and just all the stuff. It was, so the fact that the show held together, people approved most of the loans and it was able to open at the other two venues that were our partners on the tour. (laughs) It's sort of miraculous to us. So we, the thing that did change is that we were going to be as the organizer, we were going to be the first venue in 20 in February of 2021. But it was clear by the end of the fall of 2020, that that just wasn't going to be able to be possible. And plus, thankfully we were able to have the flexibility of moving to the end of the tour and our other two venues, the Toledo museum of art and the speed art museum in Louisville stayed where they were because the COVID numbers went up again mm-hmm. between November and January here. And so we, even if we had opened in February of 2021, if everything was, was ready on time, nobody would have really come to the show. And now yes. we are seeing pre-pandemic numbers. Yes. It's popular and people are able to come with groups of people who their friends or loved ones or whatever, or have even tours. So it's really great that the timing worked out this way. And so, Yes. Perhaps the spirits had something to do with it, Sarah.
0: I they were like nudging us. Well, who knows? But yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, one of the you were talking about pieces that were on their way. Were, were there pieces? I think we did talk about one artist whose work did not get included, in part because of pushback from the gallery, and that's part of the catalog. Actually, would mm-hmm. Jack Witten? You want to talk about that at all?
1: Well, thankfully, we did have a private lender.
0: Are two private uh, okay. lenders
1: who 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 were able to lend uh, two works by Jack Whitten, but they we didn't get approval to reproduce them in the catalog
0: uh, from Hauser and Worth. Is that yeah? yeah. Just trying yeah, to get the I, juicy gossip.
1: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is I think this is an important point actually. So a lot of. Like the reason for doing the show in part is just to say, as a first pass, uh, here's one way of looking at this kind of material and why it's important in American culture. And for all the reasons that are explained in the, in the didactics for the show, but also the catalog, that there is this there's this will and this need, and there has been, whether we're talking about people who are living here in the United States or anywhere else in the in the world, to. Uh, sort of reach out to those who we've lost or in the spirit world and try to make contact with them or feel their presence, make devices and images that might help open up the possibility of that kind of communication back and forth, or to make objects that honor those people or do arrangements on altars or do ceremonies and devise these different ways that we sort of talk to the unseen. And so, of course, Artists are integral to that in making objects or making images and thinking about that. But then, you know, why the United States is, the answer to that for me is very simple, which is that we have a, thinking about how we came to where we are right now, mm. it's an incredibly violent traumatic history mm-hmm. and I don't think history is in the past it's present it's in our bodies it's around us it explains why things are still the way they are or why we sort of act in patterns that we we continue to to reenact and so you can talk about that as um, haunting the present uh, and think of it as sort of metaphorical spirits but I also think a lot of people, Really, do think of it as both ways. Mm. Is that history haunting the present? Is a, is metaphorical, but also shows up in 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 tangible ways uh, in our everyday life. Yeah. And so that that part of all of that is really important. And so looking for artists who dealt with that aspect of it was also critical. So Jack Witten is one of those artists who was forthright in interviews and in his writing that he made art that either connected to spirit or invited spirit in, but also had connected a particular set of paintings that he made in 1964 that were experimental and were using a method that he didn't even really return to, um, to, he called them ghost paintings. And he didn't, he showed them to his dealer in 1964 and his dealer declined to show them. And then Jack Witten kind of put them away because it seemed like he, it disturbed they disturbed people. But when he had his 2015 retrospective, he showed them and he talked uh, matter-of-factly about their source. What Well, they weren't really... It wasn't a source that he was thinking about at the time, but he, he later thought, this must be where these images came from, or this is what gave him some of the charge and the meaning. And that was that when he was a kid... Um, traveling in the South with his father to his father's hometown, they'd pass through this place in Alabama where there' was a courthouse that uh, has a historical marker in front of it, and his father and the folks in the town would point to this window in the courthouse and say that's where that's where Henry Wells's visage is. Henry Wells was this freedman who was accused of burning down a building in the town. Mm. This is in the late eighteenth century nineteenth century and probably wrongly accused right. and, and arrested and a lynch mob uh, gathered around the courthouse and wanting to do vigilante sort of violence. And all of a sudden, as the, the story goes, a, a thunderstorm came out of nowhere and lightning bolts struck the courthouse while Henry Wells was looking out the window. And when it did, it etched his visage. Uh, in the window that he was looking out of, wow. and every time, this is what it was said to Jack Witten, every time the white folks in that town replaced the window pane and put a new one in, Henry Wells's image came back. It was mm-hmm. like, like that was. Sort I just of got a, chills. <laughs> a, yeah, sort of traumatic echo. Mm-hmm. And so when when Witten made these paintings, these black and white and gray paintings in the in 1964. All the stuff that was going around, going on in the world with regard to the civil rights movement and um, violence against blacks and their allies because of the fight for civil rights that Witten had taken part in, in, in and experienced, although he wasn't in the South anymore, he's in his New York studio, when he made these paintings, he thought of them as him having painted his thoughts mm. and made his thoughts tangible and he described at the time, he kept seeing faces that were popping up in different places that he felt like he was kind of going crazy, like mm-hmm. seeing these faces and then they were wouldn't be there and telling people about it. And so he later stated that he felt like those ghost paintings, as he called them, had, it must have been connected to the Henry Wells story. And it must have then also, as you start to sort of pull that reference, had to do with the whole kind of history of race relations in the United States and that kind of charge. And there it was serving as this kind of traumatic memory from his childhood of hearing about Henry Wells and then what his body had experienced while he was fighting for civil rights and experiencing what that was like in the United States in the early 60s. So Hauser and Wirth, when I approached them and explained, this is why I want these paintings, can I talk to a family member? I wasn't able to actually speak or be connected to a family member, but representatives from House and Worth asserted over and over again, uh, no one wants Witten associated with this subject, maybe as much because it has to do with the South and alleged superstition, mm. uh, as it does with sort of connect Witten to this kind of paranormal belief system. Mm. But my approach in the show and everything that I do is always to listen to artists and to take what they say seriously. Mm -hmm. And so Witten himself pointed to that over and over again. And so you have on one hand, an artist who's leading you there and the work, which if you're using your own eyes, really feels like that's what it is certainly about. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt. But then you have gatekeepers who might want to present Witten as this sanitized clean modernist
0: <laughs> right
1: advancing abstract painting in a particular way that has nothing to do with content let alone the supernatural which is
0: like what's even the that. point then yeah i don't know because even the most formalist painting is about something and to me it always oh, totally. so mm-hmm. yeah one of the things that you wrote in the catalog was a quote of his that says painting is an object used to seduce spirit and i just love that and i felt like because it it's also a vehicle for communicating, like spirit or, yeah, meet a literal medium, but then it can also be an object to bring them in. The show is both those things because, based on what we were just talking about, you did bring them in.
1: Yeah. And I, I don't think you even have to um, believe that they're spirits or in some kind of mystical dimension um, to be somebody who makes things whether we're talking about
0: yeah,
1: right. knitting or making a painting and have had that experience of kind of being outside of yourself mm. when you're in a groove yeah. or starting one way and then it turns out a different way in a way that pleasantly surprises you and feeling like you're catching what people talk about as that mysterious feeling of inspiration. right, And some people can attributed that to the spirits working through them or can just, but you've, you've had that experience. And I think certainly the way that Witten talks about the way he made his work um, bears this out is that, you're in a zone and you're making a thing and then yeah. you stand back and look at it and there's more in it than you intended and i certainly think that that's what he meant when he was talking about those pictures but then yeah. told a specific story about them but that's he's not alone i mean that's just gatekeepers who are saying you can't reproduce the paintings we won't let you buy borrow them so we had to go to an alternative source but you know there was another instance of an artist's family who um, or specifically an artist family that didn't want a painting borrowed because they didn't want her associated with that art. Oh, okay, That's why when I approached contemporary artists like Whitfield Lavelle or Alison Saar or whoever, I uh, asked them first, I said, I feel like your work is about this. Um, do you feel comfortable being in this context? And they said, yes. If mm. they didn't say yes or I couldn't get an answer out of them, I wasn't going to include them. So sure. that's the same for the historical artists as well.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's respectful. Okay. But it is surprising. Hauser and worth I always think of as like, in LA at least, is like part mm-hmm. of this shopping experience in the design district. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. I would think that they would be interested in something that's so on trend right now. The metaphysical world has never been more. Inspired. Sure. So,
1: yeah. And I think hopefully through the show book and the scholarship that the my collaborators have brought forth, people will look differently at like James McNeil Whistler who was completely immersed in these circles. And I think his experience of being at seances and thinking about the meaning uh, and the presence of ghosts uh, shows sort of partly explains why he painted the way he did. Mm. Um, So it's connected to practice and the things that we maybe value about those artists and talk about them as being innovators, but have connected to other things. I think now you shift that lens and again take cues from what the artist said, you have to contend with the fact that they direct people towards the spiritual or specifically spiritualism and mediumship or the experience that they've had of ghosts. You know, Marvin Cohn and other artists who's in the exhibition prowled around old houses and the ghosts that I think are in those old buildings are things he may have seen um, mm. so in some cases there are some artists who are in the show who I don't know if they had any of these beliefs but the work kind of does the primary... Um, the, the, what's included is the primary work of just establishing the prevalence of the subject matter, like the John Keydor painting from 1858 of Ichabod Crane being chased by the headless horseman. Keydor was a weird artist and did seem to gravitate towards these themes, but I'm not sure what his belief system was, but it's one of those things that had to be in the show, because if you're going to deal with the subject in American culture. It's formative um, mm. and connects to literature. I think the things that I'm most excited about presenting in this show are is that room of the spirit artists, the, the artists from spirituals camps, mm-hmm. or, or who are describing their process as being mediumship in one way or another.
0: Yeah, I noticed, so like for the exhibition, you included tools of medium or kind of like a Ouija board, I'm curious what the thought process was around that.
1: Yeah, so the material culture of spiritualism, so or things sort of associated with them, like talking boards, uh, or the spiritoscope that Dr. Robert Hare d- designed. Uh, oh,
0: that's right. Yeah, Philadelphia so chemist. That kind of reminded me of like Ghostbusters, when they would, they'd walk in a room and try to gauge mm-hmm. whether or not there was a ghost with their, I forget what that tool is called, but-
1: yeah. Well, it's it's fascinating because that there could have been a lot more of that stuff in the exhibition mm. um because there's been so much uh so many different kinds of devices electronic or just you know made of wood that are intended to be the Means through which you can facilitate the detection of spirits sure. or the communication with spirits. So that material culture had to be in the show in some way. So Brandon Hodge, who is a connoisseur of this kind of material and a historian of the talking board and the planchette, uh, who's based in Austin, Texas, lent a lot of that stuff, including Dr. Robert Hare's spiritoscope, which uh, scientifically test in front of audiences uh, whether mediums were making it up or not. Uh, and okay, his 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 sessions with his device and mediums who couldn't see the words or the letters that they were spelling out through this device convinced him that spiritualism was real.
0: And he wrote a whole book
1: about it, which is also in the show. So that experimental and scientific nature of mediumship and in the 19th century um, is a really important part of the whole arc of the story. And we sort of scratched the surface of it in the show because we're really focused on. The, the making of images and the creative process, but uh, inventors were thinking of, like Thomas Edison, were trying to make devices to detect the spirit world or to listen in on it, or just. And I think the the the, the rationale was, if we didn't have the ability to communicate across the country or across the oceans until the telegraph or we weren't able to sort of tune into radio waves and hear mm-hmm. people's voices broadcast or figure out the right chemicals that could be put on a plate to develop an image mm-hmm. where there wasn't an image before. I, I think all that scientific community was thinking about, well, if there is another place, where does the soul go?
0: Right.
1: Could we just figure out the right technology to be able to perceive
0: that? Totally, It's very rational.
1: I think it's all in line with that stuff.
0: Did you ever play with the Ouija boards or anything
1: so I didn't, but we did have a medium actually there's a there's this um a couple of women who are got documentary filmmakers who are working on a, a feature length film on the history of the Ouija board and they came to Minneapolis the week of the opening of the show okay. and we allowed them to have a local medium meet up with them and do a couple of um sessions with the Ouija with a Ouija board that they brought and <laughs> see if <laughs> anything would come through and in the most haunted report the most frequently independently reported haunted space in Mia the Connecticut oh. room which is a complete pastiche of a of a uh period room it's not even the majority of the room isn't even original oh, no. but that's the place where most people say or report to guards there's something weird in oh, that room some people don't even go in that room anymore cuz they're so freaked out about what they've seen or felt in there. So we had her work in that room and nothing, nothing came mm. through, but in the show after the installation was set, they were, they were working in there with, in the room that had some of Brandon Hodges talking boards and also like Renee Stout's root workers work table mm-hmm. and the Whistler painting. And there's some other stuff in there. She and Lacey Headkey, who is a a local, which and uh, medium. And as a person who runs this resource center called the future in, in Minneapolis. Uh, we're working on the Ouija board together. And the ghost kept the spirit who was coming through, kept trying to spell out, get out.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: <laughs> and, and the medium said that instead of it being an Amityville horror <laughs> experience, she felt like the ghost was just sort of saying, um, not hostile in a hostile way or aggressively I don't want to be bothered right now.
0: <laughs> right, like get out of my space. Who knows? Like, Stop tuning yeah, into me. Yeah, yeah. Well, right. So the the energy work classes and the medium I talked to was like all those physical world objects can mm-hmm. only be really moved by spirits that are a lower frequency, which will be like the earthbound spirits. And they are going to be most likely less happy or like positive than some of the other spirits that have like crossed over and maybe will communicate with you through lights or something that isn't as dense. And so Mm -hmm. since then, I've like decided I'm never going to use any kind of like divination tool that involves them having to move it because you could call in some like kind of dark energy potentially.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Right.
0: And so maybe that ghost was just like sad and like. Just leave me alone.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. We have had, though, which has delighted the the staff at Mia. They get excited and can't wait to tell me when something weird happens in the show. So we've had electric, electrical oh, issues in the exhibition. A few different instances of lights going completely off oh, wow. and then back on. Okay. Uh, a photograph, one of the spirit photographs by William Mumler mm. in a case that had to be set up an alarm. There's a sculpture that's in there that had to be set with a courier watching and then the whole thing had to be set up. All that stuff is super secure and is used with just what our preparators use as first-rate kind of visions and stuff like that. Right. Uh, one of the Mumler photographs fell down well, and is like lying at the bottom of the case the other day. Okay. You could say, oh, that's... Come on, that's just the adhesive failing. But this.
0: like... Nothing else did. And then never, like, you never see that. Right. Exactly. Art handlers are paid top dollar to deal with that. Yeah.
1: Right. The Bill Viola piece, Three Women, which has a new, like, completely, you know, up to the minute sort of with the screen Mm. and everything, and has never had any issues, was like freezing the other day. But that's the only day. And when our tech guy went up to look at it, it was, there was nothing he could just. see that was wrong with it and the light and renee stout's work table keeps going out Oh, interesting um yeah so i mean who knows that could be just real real problems but it could be something else Uh, it
0: could be yeah you've created a little cozy playground (laughs) for some ghosts well so i guess if you're still comfortable with me doing a tarot Mm -hmm. but um before that are there any places for people who are maybe not going to make it to minneapolis
1: we have a, on their website, so if you go to artsmia.org and go to the Supernatural America exhibition webpage, which is just in, it's usually on the front page, but after the show's closed, it'll just be accessible in the exhibitions page. There's, there's a blog post that I wrote that just explains what the reason for doing the show was, and oh, nice. it's very personal, but then there's also an audio guide that we produced that can be accessed anywhere. You don't have to be in the show. You also don't need to visit the show to get it. It's sort of a podcast format. And so it includes the the voices of a number of artists in the ex- exhibition, including Alison Saar, Howardina Pindell, um, and others, and some mediums. And then there is a 3D interactive program of the installation that is oh, wow. based on footage in the show that I don't know if we're going to make widely available, but I think it should just be linked to our website. So there's a lot of ways. And then the, the catalog is published by the University of Chicago Press and the Minneapolis Institute and is quite thorough and has all the images from the show.
0: Oh, that's great. Cool. Well, yeah, I highly recommend the audio guides because it's interviews, really digestible, like 10, 15 minute interviews or little sound bites from different artists or mediums or Yeah. Well, cool. So as we discussed, I pulled a couple cards for you. Mm -hmm. And we kind of had talked about doing a more general personal development type reading. Mm -hmm. So the first card, I don't want you to get scared, but it was (laughs) the Ten of Swords, Uh um, which if you see is a man with a bunch of swords in his back. And (laughs) I took that to mean one you're kind of wrapping up this huge project. If swords are ideas, communication, this is the end of a huge amount of communication and thinking and working through. So, and I don't know, are you exhausted?
1: I am. Uh, I'm I'm excited and I'm happy to be doing a lot in the show. I'm meeting with lots of people who are coming to visit. I'm giving a lot of tours. I'm basically surrendering to all that until after the show closes on the 15th. But a few people have said to me, make sure
0: you take a break. Yeah, so I would say the cards are definitely reinforcing that. And so because that card was a little intense, I pulled one other card and got the High Priestess, which I think, especially knowing that you were born on October 31st, I feel like is your card. The High Priestess is all about Especially in this deck, it is very empowered, but from a point of view where you don't need to take action because you have knowledge as your kind of main source of power. So it's all about withdrawing into your lair of witches' spells, and she's holding a scroll. And so it's all about reading, going to the library, that kind of thing. But so to me, for you, it felt like now is the time to kind of regroup and work on research and... Potentially, there might be an element of it feeling like a little uncomfortable after being so out in the world and action focused, but it would be recharging. And, you know, she's kind of in this like night space. And so maybe kind of regrouping away from the hot spotlight. I'm going to just pull one other one and see. Oh, and then Ace of Swords. So, do you have a new show that you're working on?
1: So, I have a few. Ideas. One is really new and exciting to me, which I haven't even presented yet, but I've started to talk to people about it. Then there's a couple other things that I presented. One I think they're very interested in. It's a it's a topic that I have I have been working on and publishing on for several years. It's probably synonymous with my identity as a scholar. But another colleague was working on a show on the same subject, and I kind of stayed out of his way, and then he was recently told by his institution it's never going to happen. so then he gave me his blessing to do it the way I'd want to do it. so I presented and I think they're interested so we'll see but you know I always have a lot of little things going on and big ideas that I've learned you know have to be developed collaboratively and you know ethically and with a lot of listening and a lot of outreach to new communities because that's how you learn stuff. So we'll see.
0: Yeah, well, that's exciting. I look forward to hearing what you do next. Mm-hmm. Um, well, cool. I think that's, you know, everything. Do you have anything else that you'd like to plug in terms of programming people could see online? or?
1: Yeah. If you're in Minneapolis, there's two programs that are exciting. One is on the 21st, we are doing a program with indigenous artists who are included in the exhibition, Chris Pappen, Choling Taha, and John oh. leanos, And it's a panel discussion that'll be moderated by andrea carlson another artist who isn't in the show but is a good friend of the museum and the community
0: i think i know andrea actually i think i met her through suvac or or something
1: that is exactly probably right yeah so uh whether you're here or not i think it'll be recorded and then up on our vimeo page afterwards and then on may 5th allison saar will be here and she will be in conversation with me
0: oh excellent Mm -hmm. well great well, thank you so much for your time.
1: Yeah, thank you.
0: That's all for this week's episode. Thanks for side wooing with us. We release episodes every other week on Thursday. Please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast for good karma point. Until we meet again in the woo.